Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the literature prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Today we have uh, Dr. Brett Jossen with us um, on the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast. So our podcast here, we're interested in the usefulness of the Nobel Prize in Literature and your paper on uh, judging modernism, Wolf, Yates, and Literary Prizes uh, speaks on the impact of the Nobel and other Literary Prizes on shaping literary modernism. Can you first elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by judging modernism? Yeah, so um, well, the obvious contention is when speaking about literary prizes and judging modernism is that literary prizes involve a process of judgment toward a writer where, where judges ascertain who best meets the criteria and who's the most worthy of receiving the award. But what I wanted to direct the audience attention to is what the other consequences of receiving a literary prize um, was and why. So judging is more than like a perfunctory act of recognizing and awarding merits. Prizes are institutions which form literary associations, sometimes unwillingly, where there's bias, whether conscious or unconscious, uh, where it's, it's infused in their selections. And there are significant consequences on an author's image in the public sphere. Uh, so for all their good intentions, prizes can be difficult to navigate. Now, this pro process becomes really interesting when it uh, one considers the image that modernists often fashion for themselves. Uh, they're ones that are resistant to being judged. It was imbued with the philosophy of art for art's sake, uh, rather than vying for approval, but especially from the mass public. Uh, so take, for instance, the modernist magazine, The Literal Review, their, their strapline was making no compromise with the public taste. And then you have other critics, such as, uh, who are instrumental in the canonization of modernism, such as F.R. Leavis and John Crow Ransom, um, school, uh, in the school of new criticism, they presented modernism as being exclusively for intellectuals and the literary elite. So Leavis claimed that modernists were read only, by, uh, this is a quote, only by a very small specialized public and are beyond the reach of the vast majority of those who consider themselves to be educated while Ransom claimed that modernists' work should be taken seriously in hand by professionals rather than occasionally by amateurs. So it's important to note that this was this image, um, this, it was an image of, of modernism being presented. It was a, a valorization of modernism being exclusive. Like there was a lot of instances where modernism, modernist authors engaged with the mass public. Um, but the retention of the image was important. Uh, Je Jennifer Wick said that modernism is a brand name, 
uh, and brand names carve out a special locus for social recognition. And that mass, in this instance, mass culture was the villain, at least in commonly held versions of modernism anyway. So <clears throat> however, the strategies uh, that modernists devised relied upon maintaining control of the narrative. For instance, uh, by being particular about what publications they feature in and how they're presented in them. But at the start of the 20th century, literary prizes began to have the potential of creating heightened media attention, which is entirely out of their control. Uh, with their nomination, they are, without agreement, associated with the prize, any potential sponsor, any judges, their fellow nominees, past winners, for example, and that can threaten their carefully managed brand of exclusivity. So with one minute of judging modernism, I'm drawing attention to just who are behind these prizes, who are the sponsors, who are the judges, what do they mean, and what does it mean for the authors? And in another way, I'm considering how the public then judge authors who have won particular prizes, and what do these associations mean in the public eye? I, I just want to ask you on this, right? Because you, you mentioned about Wolf, and you also mentioned about you know how modernist writers are just really art like at least has the image of the arts for our sake right so they shouldn't really to care a much too much about those recognition about prizes but it seems to me like from what you're saying in your paper and what you you're trying to drive at it's like she did care i'm just wondering does that sort of add on to how we look at virginia wolf because from my understanding oftentimes people see her as like snob, right? Sort of like a, someone who's like, really doesn't really care about what people think about. Does, does your paper or her response to prizes tell us more about her as a writer or artistic vision? Yeah, um, she, she did present herself quite snobby. Like she wrote this very famous letter that was published posthumously um, called the middle brow and it has some um, quite you know damning statements like if anybody calls me middle brow i'll take my pen and stab them you know they, she doesn't want to be associated with that whatsoever um but i think i think there's a lot more to it than just want not wanting to be associated and uh, it's like uh, because she's a snob i don't know if that's the best way to say it um she was very concerned with her writing being taken seriously and in the 1920s, especially as a woman, her, her writing was automatically sort of assumed to be uh, less than. Um, in terms of winning a prize, especially something like the Femina Villarouse, that almost like solidified her as a typical female middle brow writer. Hmm. Um, but she was very canny about her image. She wasn't... She, she, she had to straddle a line between what she wanted personally and what she wanted professionally. Because also, not only was she an author, she was running the Hogarth Press. So she had to be very business-minded. And obviously, she needed to uh, earn, earn, a earn money, earn an income, earn a living. Um, and it's actually what we find with a lot of, you know, even authors nowadays, they might uh, criticize things like the book or they might criticize things like literary festivals or appearing in magazines things like that they don't want to do that they want to stick with their work but the reality is that they need to earn some money so virginia wolf as an author she she didn't like 
I'll just uh, she didn't like selling out like mm. she 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 uh there's an entry in her diary where she feels like she um has become a sold soul in her words because she wrote some reviews for an American magazine um but at the same time she had around the 19 around 1928 when she won the Camino Belarus she was starting to get um a lot of notoriety it was actually following the publication of Orlando in 1928 after the Camino Camino Belarus that she became a well enough known writer that she was able to have um support herself through her writing but it had to be sustained so she did have to do things that she wasn't particularly a fan of mm. such as um well she didn't decline the Femina Behirus it was completely in her power to she could have just said no like it, it's always an option like Sartre did for the Nobel Prize um but she didn't and one of the reasons is she had to be mindful of um her career you know it was a good opportunity for her to um get publicity and get some notoriety hmm. even if she had to do it through gritted teeth what a, then what is was her uh take on the nobel prize because you mentioned that um like how uh yates won the nobel prize but she didn't get even nominated so she's she felt like it's kind of like uh a, a snub towards her right like like as maybe sort of like excluding her or even like mm -hmm. in your paper sort of insinuating some type of gender discrimination of sorts well, what, uh, you know what, i've actually yeah. considered what she would think about right, you know, yeah. um it, so hypothetically if she was nominated it might be a prize that she was much more willing to accept mm. because unlike the femina the nobel prize in literature was a very elite intellectual prize it had something with you know a lot of gravitas and prowess um but in terms of prizes in general if you compare her reaction to winning a, like herself winning a prize which was one which was almost like she was quite ashamed of winning the prize with her reaction to when her friends uh Evita Sackville West like won the I think it was the Hawthorne did she was over the moon well relatively she was happy for her she didn't decry prize culture when beta sacral west won only when she won the femina and i think it's like i said i think it's to do with what was associated with the prizes the femina was a very middle brow prize but the nobel prize very high brow and well yates won in 1923 and by that point it had quite a good reputation for being intellectual and actually um he had the opposite problem of Virginia Woolf uh he was already a very well-known writer but when he won the um prize despite it being awarded to him for sort of like giving a voice to Ireland like uh what was the um it says it's he had a highly artistic form which gives an expression to the spirits of a whole nation it was ironic because one of the effects of him winning he was almost deracinated he or alienated from uh parts of the irish population those who saw him as far too intellectual and i've got a quote here following his win from a newspaper um, which said there was a general astonishment when yates was awarded the nobel prize for idealistic literature 
It is true that for some years he has been regarded by a small circle as the finest poet of his day, uh, but these men are poets to a small minority. These are what they call poets, poets. Uh, and it says, his head has been in the clouds since boyhood and now it's only, um, and it is only now then that heads like this receive Nobel, Nobel crowns. Uh, another quote said that uh, it seems like the Gaelic revival, the, the cultural movement the age was a major part of, it seemed to be a shelter for the intelligentsia. Hmm. So whilst Wolf was associated with the prize that she felt dragged her down, Yeats was associated with the prize that elevated him quite high, and he was already quite high as it, as it, as it was. Um, so arguably, maybe, uh, Virginia Woolf would have actually been much more accepting of the Nobel Prize in literature. Uh, it's a good, good yeah. question. Was what was was there any sort of public outrage that Wolf never in her lifetime like uh, got any mention or nomination or like got, received the prize during a lifetime? Um, I don't think at the time, and I think one of the like um, I think. The reputation of Virginia Woolf is one which has grown definitely since the 70s and mm. scholarship was on her. Um, and I think the level that she was lauded, especially, well, during her lifetime and soon after, it was enough. It was it was a good amount. Um, I don't think anybody's... There's, pro there's probably been, you know, a few people that said, you know, she was definitely um she should have definitely definitely have been considered for the prize uh and that she's not a million miles away from if if she did win it wouldn't be a surprise but i don't think people like fans or people that were close to her people like leonard wolf felt like she'd been snubbed i don't think there was ever a case where um she'd been expected to win mm. and then didn't that's um one of the common examples right of how the Nobel prize is sort of losing its credibility right it's like these all these great writers that have not won the Nobel prize and wolf is doesn't even get nominated so yeah mm -hmm. it's interesting for you to, to say you know like oh actually none of the people around her or the fans or readers or supporters really thought she was snubbed was that is that correct yeah, yeah, I don't, hmm. I don't, I, I, I've not come across anything which suggests that there was um, disappointment with her not receiving the award. Hmm. And, and even if there are, like, it, it's that's one of the issues with Nobel Prize. It's got such a huge remit. That's hmm. its underlying structural flaw. Such a huge remit that there's always going to be consistent criticism about either who was awarded or more likely who wasn't awarded. In the 1920s, like this period of modernism that you're focusing on, what was sort of the, the status, the prestige of the Nobel Prize? Would you say there was a, a very strong reaction to it, like appeal to it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so by the 1920s, it had gained a considerable, considerable reputation. Um, and it was massively significant, actually, when Yates won it. Um, like I said, he was awarded for his uh, verse, which you know, presented the Irish voice, and it was part of the Gallic movement. 
So for an Irish poet to be awarded this in the midst of their um, fight for independence from, from Britain and the creation of their own culture, to have that validation from an, an, an international stage, it was massively significant. And uh, there was like a lot of press media attention which referred to, you know, Yeats as the first Irishman to join the band of immortals. Like they ha it has, it does, and it had like huge amounts of power. You're now listening to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize Literature Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Now, back to the podcast. Your paper does mention uh, another literary prize, which is the, the Femina Prize. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering, was the Femina Prize created um, in a way as sort of like a inspired by the Nobel Prize or trying to mimic it or in response to it, trying to address maybe some of the flaws of the Nobel Prize? Was there any relationship with them? Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's, there's a genealogy of prizes, especially at the start of the 20th century. Um, and James English's uh, The Economy of Prestige, he notes the Nobel Prize as being sort of like one of the first modern um, literary prizes that inspired others. So you have the Nobel Prize and that was, uh, that then inspired, uh, let's take, let's go to France. Let's take the, take the line from the Nobel Prize to the Femina Bihurus. Um, the Prix Goncourt was established uh, in 1904 um, by the Academy of Goncourt after seeing you know, the success of the Nobel Prize in literature, they wanted to sort of award their own. Um, and what happened was in 19, I think it was 1904 that it was established. The first pre-goncourt had an all-male uh, judging panel. Uh, and I, I believe at this point they were going to award a female author, but as soon as they realized it was a female author, they, they um, changed their minds. This, this got out. So in reaction to the pre-goncourt, a group of uh, female journalists who worked for the magazine Femina set up the pre-Femina. Now this was a prize which had an all-female uh, judging panel. Now this continues in France, uh, but it was in 1919 that the pre-Femina, uh, they sent out invitations to uh, other other countries asking them if they would like to set up their own prize in the name of diplomatic, uh, uh, of healing uh, international uh, wounds following the Great War. So they sent uh, invitations to Britain, to America, to a few other countries, and, and it was only Britain that really responded. There was very briefly a, an American French prize. Um, yeah, the Femina Bihurus, the one which Wolf won, it does have a genealogy to the Nobel Prize, perhaps it's its great, great granddad. Um, and you can trace it back, you can trace it back because often prizes beget prizes um, that either be inspired by the prizes or they'll be set up in reaction against other prizes. I'm just wondering like, what, what what's your conclusion then regarding, do we need prizes? Yeah, there's, I, as, I, in my research, as far back as, well, literary prizes sort of started popping up, like, 
there's always been articles saying, well, we've already got one liquor price, do we need further? Like, do we need more? Do we need any at all? And uh, no, like the real the truth is no. Like the, the statement is that we don't need literary prices to direct us as to what to read. It's completely true. We don't need them. But that's not to say that they don't have their value. They have um value, first of all, people we've got to think about pr practicalities. Some people might feel uncertain of where to start. And uh, something, a book which has been given a prize is an excellent way for somebody to go, okay, well, I'm going to take the judgment of these people whom I trust, um, who I've chosen to trust because they're apparently experts in the field and I'm going to take their recommendation. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of their values, but also they do present, they do have a value in sense of, um, well, different prizes have different value. So the Booker Prize is very, it's, it's very good at generating sales, you know? It's a huge boost to the publishing industry. It gets people talking about books again. Like as soon as like there's news pieces in uh, pieces in um, on TV, the radio, the newspapers about books, about literature, it's good because it gets people talking about it. It's like any other cultural prize, like the Turner Prize in the UK. Often every year you'll have uh, a news segment when it's announced, and there'll, there'll be a controversial opinion because people will say this isn't art. I mean, that's that's a positive thing to have that conversation. Have people who perhaps won't, you know, go to uni who don't go to university to study literature or art or music to have them part of the conversation about what is literature, what is music, what is art. That's that's good in itself. So it's another good thing about literary prizes. They instigate conversation, uh, and finally, you know, they they offer excellent lifelines for for authors, not just those who have had a successful career already and going to get the Nobel Prize in Literature or the Booker Prize, but those who are just starting out. So you have smaller prizes, ones which are run by presses themselves or, or even bookshops, or maybe in a bit uh, on um, in larger terms, there's the Society of Authors in the UK. They run several, several prizes, many prizes actually, and they're quite, they're, they're their function isn't to consecrate an author, but to give them an opportunity to write more. Um, the Somerset Mormon Award, for example, was a cash prize, which was to be spent on sending the author to another a foreign country to, to imbue themselves with like a different understanding of how other people live, uh, to to inspire them, to help their to help their work. It's so prizes definitely have value and like it's it's not just about being directed of what to read mm -hmm. it can be useful but it's not their sole purpose yeah definitely right like uh like you mentioned one of the main functions i suppose is it can inspire conversations and one thing that i've been also thinking about is if we go back to the nobel prize i don't know about the other prizes that you've studied but the nobel prize specifically has this idea of idealism, right? And that idealism seems to be uh, directed to this sort of global positive impact, almost to the point of like peacemaking. And one thing I, I've been thinking about is, um, like you mentioned, it creates conversations. And so when you, in order to have sort of peace building, um, 
around the world on a global scale, you need to have conversations. So you, when you have the elect, like every year elect a writer for everyone to talk about and whether they complain about it or they rave about it, it gets people mm -hmm. talking, right? So I, I'm so maybe for you, the prizes that you've studied, which I presume are a, a more domestic scale, right? Do you think mm -hmm. that also has that type of, uh, I don't know, promoting some sort of like social harmony, so, social lubricant type of effect to it, would you say? I'm just trying to think of more re like recent examples where maybe controversial writers have been selected. I, I don't know if that's been one which has got the whole nation talking. Um, it definitely gets literary communities uh, talking when, well, we'll t again, let's take um, when the Booker Prize failed to actually select one author and selected Benedina Barista and Margaret Atwood. Um, there was criticism because, again, like I said, it was the first time a black British female writer had won the prize, but she had to, she had to share it. Um, and this was following the Black Lives Matter movement. Hmm. Um, so I think people say with, with one of the belief that, you know, it could have been a fantastic moment. And just to be clear, I don't think it was anything to do with tokenism. I think hmm. uh, Girl hmm. and Others is a fantastic book that definitely could have won the award by itself. And arguably, it's more that it feels like Margaret Atwood was given the prize because of who, who she, who she is. That like you can't not um, award it to Margaret Atwood at this point in her life. Like, um, so I feel like in a in a maybe an alternate universe where Bernadine Neveristo did win it solely by herself, the conversation would have certainly been a lot more focused, less on the fact that it was directed towards two people, but that it was the first time that some uh, black British female author won. And then, yeah, a literary prize could have been part of the much broader conversation about uh, social uh, social movements mm. in this terms, like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I feel I don't I feel that hmm, I'm not sure. I don't, do, do you recall any uh, well, particular authors which stood out and have? have oh, I know. The, from the Nobel Prize, right? Like Peter Hanke, when he got selected, like people were outraged because apparently he's an anti-Semite. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of people were complaining about that. Um, and then also another example of a Chinese writer like Mo Yan. Mo Yan, um, the 2012 Nobel Prize winner, he also received a lot of... Uh, negative response in the West because he's a writer that's very close to the Chinese government who mm. which are perceived to be like an authoritarian government so it seems like very anti freedom of expression that the Nobel Prize tries to convey yeah and, and so when I think about these cases I feel like yes it's controversial but that's also like kind of the point yeah 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 but now that I'm thinking of it, like I think there was a bit of um, political diplomacy needed when Yates won because it felt like, uh, whilst I said earlier that it was a great celebration for the Irish cause, at the same time it felt like a snub towards Britain um, from Scandinavian countries. So, yeah, there's certainly uh, 
political motives wrapped up in it sometimes. I, I, I'm just wondering, if I just think about this then, it seems like maybe one of the reasons why the Nobel Prize consistent has consistently gained that sort of prestige is, again, going back to James, James English, maybe it's because of that threat of scandal, right? Like, it's always okay. trying to make this very daring selections. Whereas, I'm just wondering, like, for, for the prize that you've studied, were there any prizes that were as daring as the Nobel who can award, for example, the prize to Bob Dylan? You know, like, were, were there any <coughs> terrible cases? Um, no, I think, no? I think maybe the boldest one. Um, and, you know, it can take those risks because, you know, if it has one year where it's got a bit uh left field then it can recuperate the next year whilst a lot of other prizes um well less established prizes they need to they need to like maintain their their their, their integrity their you know their original vision so you have if you have something specific like um well actually okay well let's talk about uh the booker prize there, there have been a few controversial years there's always controversial years there's always controversial years in the booker prize but one of the controversies that it has is um frequently is what kind of literature award because it's a very vague um you know criteria award the best and the best is left to the judge's decision so some years all they'll the judges will aim to award <clears throat> quite accessible easy reading books and other years it will aim to award you know quite highbrow literary books so one of the reasons I actually got very interested in this reprises was uh, a man booker, which was, I think it was 2011 man booker, which sought to award readability. And at that point, there was a, there was a huge, well, people kicked off. There was a, like, a huge conversation about what readability actually meant, about what the Booker Prize actually stood for, what literature stands for. And from that one controversial, uh, yeah, two prizes established themselves in opposition to it. There was the... Mm. Rath, what is now known as the Rathbone's Folio Prize and the Goldsmith's Prize. <clears throat> Goldsmith's Prize in particular uh, was set up to specifically award innovative and bold fiction. Mm. So um, I suppose, I suppose that, that is one prize which can be bold, but that's his point. That's his point. Like every year, its aim is to not, um, well, not necessarily to play it safe. Well, something like the Booker, they have to appeal to a broad audience. So yeah, I think what's special about the Nobel Prize is got a broad audience and it can take you know the occasional risk. But um, generally, the larger you go, the more appeal you've got to make, the more accommodating you've got to be. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all major podcast platforms. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Ka-Chi-Chuck. The production team is Audrey Chen, Celine Wong, and Gwen Wong. <laughs>